just opened that up and made a funny face when I smelled it in the can. I know, I wonder if that funny face was a positive one or a not so positive one. Kind of, kind of the latter. Okay. More like why. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Today's episode, if I were to compare my end to something else, I would compare it to an automatic transmission in a car that has the tap optional stick to make it a stick shift, but it's really not a stick shift. Like right. if you put it in that mode and forget, it's going to do it for you. <laughs> I mean, it's nothing like that, but it's everything like that. It's just falls under the category of kind of why. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Today's episode is ridiculous. I'm going to tell you exactly what I'm going to talk about right off the bat. Ridiculous things. And ridiculous meaning, oh my God, that's ridiculous and amazing. But it's still, there's something just a little ridiculous about it. So my first thing that I want to talk about is the trumpet that Dizzy Gillespie played. Ridiculous. I can't wait to hear more about it. Emily Dizzy Gillespie, Dizzy Gillespie played a trumpet that had a 45 degree tilt upward of the bell. Not common. Yeah. So that's one of the ridiculous things. So ridiculous. Then I'm going to talk about jazz trombone choirs. Completely absurd. And then I'm going to talk about... Uh, 16-year-old, I think he's 17 now, Joey Alexander, who is one of the most talented pianists alive on this planet all the way. Cannot and, wait to hear yeah. all about this from Emily Reese, radio host, classical, jazz, extraordinaire. Yeah. I can't wait to hear more. What are you going to talk about today, sommelier Joe Mott? Uh, I'm going to talk about trends that I think are ridiculous right now in the world of <laughs> beverages, uh, alcoholic beverages. One is the hard seltzer craze. Like White Claw and shit? Yes. White Claw and shit. Yeah. Like that. Yes. All of that. Okay. And that's not to say, like, I've had a White Claw mm -hmm. and it wasn't like the worst thing I ever sipped. Yeah. Yeah. But I've only ever had one. Yeah. My friend actually took a picture of me drinking it and sent it to her husband and was like, look at what I got my friend Jilly drinking. And I was like, this is just for funsies because it's cute right now. Yeah. And it was also, but it was like the second worst thing I ever drank. It just tasted like a fad. It tasted yeah. like the wrong type of boot cut pant. It's like the wine cooler of today. It really. is. Because like, you know, Bartles and James and that was like what people drank in the 80s. And now people drink White Claw instead. An obscene amount, $2.5 mm -hmm. billion dollars worth, is, to be exact. Wow. Next, I'm going to talk about, after that, sour beers, fruity sour beers. Okay. Every brewery I go to, they are making hard seltzer. They can be world-renowned for their West Coast IPA, and you go there and they have a hard seltzer, <laughs> and they have a fruity sour. <laughs> and then, yeah. just to leave this episode on a good note, because it is obviously, it's it's going to be very educational. Yeah. And the drinks that I'm going to present you with are the, of the two ridiculous categories, we found the best of the best, right? Of and, course. And so I'm not, but I'm not going to, because I'm sort of poo-pooing them, I'm not going to tell everybody, unfortunately, what gotcha. know, producers there. But okay. the last thing we're going to drink is ridiculously delicious <laughs> in like all the best ways uh, coming from an organic orchard if you want Ooh. a teaser. Cider? Maybe. Okay. Apples or pears or something from an orchard. Perhaps. Okay. Perhaps. Certainly not a grape orchard, is it? No, it's a, no it is not. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to all of you to Scores and Pours. Thanks 
for listening and tuning in. We wanted to thank all of our patrons before we get started for donating your time and your money to Scores and Pours. We couldn't do this without you. You can learn about how to become a patron, of course, on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Scores and Pours. We have tiers there. So if you want some merch, you'll always get patron-only content no matter what tier you choose. Check us out. We'd love to have your support. We'd be grateful. And on that same website, patreon.com slash pours, there is a link to our merch site where you can get some extra merch if you so choose and want to support us. And for those of you that can't donate at this time, this is our gift to you, so enjoy it. Find us on Instagram at scoresandpours and and, uh, DM us there if you have any show ideas or questions or comments. So let's get started, shall we? Yeah. Do you want to start by learning about hard seltzers or would you like to... Tell the world about Dizzy Gillespie's ridiculous trump and how awesome it is. <laughs> Let's have a sip of some seltzer. All right. Here's my biff with hard seltzer because my sister-in-law, my my sister, like almost everybody I know drinks hard seltzer. So I'm not trying to like slam on hard seltzer. I just don't, honestly don't understand it other than it being a marketing ploy that everybody has jumped into because it's not like it's kind of promoted as like a healthy beverage, like it's healthier than beer, because it's maybe bloats you less, or mm-hmm. you know, like this drink we're gonna drink right now or taste. You read the whole can, and it's saying it's basically a health beverage, yet it has four point five percent alcohol. Now that's not to say that alcohol is healthy or not. In moderation, wine and beer is really healthy. You know, there's a lot of antioxidants and stuff in wine, and this is coming from, obviously, Jilmot MD, um, which I am not. But, you know, I drink a glass of wine a day or sometimes two, and I don't know, I feel pretty healthy. I had someone tell me the other day, wow, you're 42? I was like, no. Yes, you are. Yes, I am. So let's taste this guy. Tell Tell me what you think. This is a hard seltzer. Mm. It smells like New York seltzer. Remember those when you were a kid? Did you drink those? No. Weird. Now, first of all, I want to point out that a lot of times hard seltzers, how they're made, because most people I don't think know how hard seltzers are made. I just wonder, like, why don't you get your La Croix, spike it with some vodka, and <laughs> spike it with whatever syrup you want. If, yeah. you, if you're drinking it because you want something that's light, Slightly tasty, but you get a little buzz on because why else would you drink hard seltzer and unless yeah. you want a buzz? Just do that. It's like way cheaper and you're <laughs> wasting way less packaging and all the things. So how it's made is a producer of hard seltzer takes alcohol that's either made from cane syrup, cane sugar syrup, or they're taking uh, malted barley. So think of like grains to make beer and they distill it. So they're making like a brandy or a rum or a vodka, but it's flavorless, okay? Okay. And you may ask like, well, why wouldn't they just add vodka to it if that is such a quote unquote maybe cheap way to go? Well, malt beverages, because they don't have vodka in them, they're in a lower tax bracket. So that's one reason. But how this alcohol is made, they're taking what's called a neutral malt base. And online you'll see it abbreviated as NMB. And they're stripping it of all of the flavors that it could have. So they're taking basically barley, what we'd go to make beer. They're finding a way to eradicate all of the flavor that it can have. But it's still, when you go through the process of steeping that in water, 
it releases and you, you malt it first and then you steep it in water, it still has the ability to release its sugars into the water so that those sugars are then fermentable. So it's basically like a beer without any flavor. Yeah. That's the start of the process. Now there is a process where you can just have water, you can add sugar and yeast. So yeast have something to feed on, but this is much less common. It takes much more time. There's more susceptibility for something to go wrong in your in your little liquid batch. Okay. So most producers will choose to do the the other process that I mentioned because most of the people that do it are breweries. So they have all the equipment to make beer already, and then they just need a couple of more, you know, pieces of equipment to be able to fit in to make a, a hard seltzer style beverage. Okay. So this that we're drinking is basically that. It's been made with some other kind of alcohol, like a cane sugar alcohol, and then all the flavor taken out and somehow gets carbon dioxide in it. Yeah, that's so this has been yeah. CO2 injected, okay. which most hard seltzers are okay. to get their bubbles. But this has like, when you read the ingredients label, you're like, wow, it's so healthy. There's a little tea in it. There are gotcha. rose hips. <laughs> there are rose petals, lemongrass. It's almost a little gingery kind of. It tastes like really watered down artisanal ginger ale to me. Yeah, I could see that. Like very watered down. Very watered down, yeah, because it's mostly water. Now there's, when you read this package. The can is, yeah. Yes. The, as the, uh, many I mean, would call saying, it. Yeah, we call it the packaging. But yes, when you read the can, 100% botanicals. The word antioxidant is on the label. The calorie level is on the label. No added sugars. I mean, naturally gluten-free. So this is basically, you know, I mean, if I were to read this and it's got like a leaf on it. Yeah. You'd think it's healthier than a beer, for, for sure healthier than a beer. Yeah. I mean, they're definitely marketing it to a that person in the market that is the yoga mat toting hybrid drive-in. You know, they want yeah, to get that to that Is that a male or person. female? I know, just, just say it. Well, just I mean. Just say it, just say it. Females. Yeah, yeah, 70%. I mean, so much of that, though, too, is marketing, I think, because beer is marketed toward men way more aggressively than it is toward women. That's, so, that's true, very and true. And so I'm sure that they market the seltzer more aggressively toward women, and if all of the packaging was neutral, people would just drink what they wanted rather than what they think they should want. That You're definitely right about that. And the same thing, you know, when we think about why would breweries make, you know, they, have, they make great beer, they have merch, why are we, you know, we're, we're brewing beer, we're marketing. Mm -hmm. Why are we going to now have hard seltzer? Well, because so, there are a lot of times where either someone, I was going to say doesn't drink, but that's what kombucha is for, right? If they don't drink alcohol, they might have a soda or a kombucha on yeah. tap. But, you know, it's unfortunately a product of our times. I don't really experience this a lot because I live in an urban area with really, and I'm in the natural wine world, so I have a lot of open-minded customers. But, you know, when I go out into the burbs, I mean, like yesterday was a great example at Mother's Day. I, we were at a Jill only distancing Mother's Day because everybody else is fully vaxxed. And so I was the one kind of keeping my distance. But men were drinking beer. Women were drinking hard seltzers. And then when men wanted to not drink any more beer because they were probably full, then they drink hard seltzer. It's like, wow. so it's like got this, you know, if you don't want to be bloated, but it is marketed towards women mm -hmm. for sure. You know, the craft beer market has only grown 
0.7% over the last year or so, a couple years. And this was, I think, a 2018 statistic, 0.7. Okay. Hard seltzers in, I think, I want to say 2019 to 2020, rose 128%. Yeah. So this is a market that brewers are looking at and like, we need to attract more people to just our brewery in general, and that will help our sales. Yeah. You know, if we have something to offer, not only just the ladies, but someone who might not like beer. Yeah. You know? You would think that whoever, however many years ago now it's been, handful of years ago that this exploded onto the market, whoever was the one who figured that out really must have been or must be some kind of like genius because it really has just overtaken, it's everywhere now. It's when, everywhere. I was going to say this about sour beers, but it this is a perfect example too where it's not it's not only ridiculous, it's like ubiquitous. It yeah. is. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And, I mean, I was going to say this and, you know, this, this could have been in our It's Everywhere episode, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. um, I think ridiculous is a little bit more appropriate. And I'll come back to this because there's a, a little bit more that I want to say about hard seltzers, but do you like this? I mean, we haven't, of course, we're not going to divulge who makes this or the, the name of the actual yeah. product, but do you like this? You know, the first drink I took, I hated it, and but then it. Once I kind of got used to what it is, I would definitely drink one. I mean, it's it's kind of good. Well, that's I brought you the best. I know. You know, of course. Yeah. Oh, my opinion of the best. I mean, Fulton is a local brewery, and they have uh, hop seltzer out. Bauhaus is a local brewery. They have a hard seltzer out, and they're really popular, and people love them. And they have like flavors like watermelon and lemongrass and ginger and cucumber and all these flavors. And the thing is, is this that I brought you is, in my opinion, this is a basically a hard seltzer because it's sparkling, it's got alcohol, and it's got water. But the people that make this say, it's not a hard seltzer. This is a hard health drink. And I'm like, well... <laughs> Good Lord. Okay. Yeah, I know. Are we going to split hairs here? Or <laughs> Yeah, I know. So the issue I have with hard seltzers is a lot of times they do kind of taste fake, and they also taste... Like when I'm having a beer, beer, like I want an IPA and I know that the repercussion is like it has alcohol. So maybe I can only have one or two or when I'm hanging out with my sister, maybe three. <laughs> and when I drink a non-alcoholic beer, it's like I just don't want the alcohol, but I want the flavor. Whereas this, it's sort of like, I don't know why I just don't like the idea of like, what? so you're having a sparkling water and now you want that sparkling water to have alcohol. Like you're just sort of looking to get alcohol into your system. Yeah. And that I don't. Yeah. Really like. Yeah, you're very much about drinking to enjoy and eating to enjoy and like to experience. And, you know, so I, I, yeah, I can see how this one wouldn't really fit your profile of, you know. And like if someone brought this over and wanted me to taste it, would I drink a half a can? Yeah, yeah. I would. But I'd I just would one. never, I would just, <laughs> I would just never buy it, you yeah. know. Yeah. Like, all right, tell me about Dizzy Gillespie. I've been rambling on about hard seltzer for, Hours, seemingly. Hours. And, and I apologize for anybody listening that loves a hard seltzer. Send me one. I'd love to taste it. I'll, I always taste them with an open mind. It's more the concept than yeah. the flavor itself. Go ahead, Emily Reese. It's kind of like putting alcohol in kombucha. People are doing that now, too. And you're just like, well, I mean. Yes and, yes and no. Kombucha is a naturally alcoholic product. True. Right? So and yes. it's, a, it's more about controlling that alcohol. And if some people, you know, I, that's just a whole that's other, a whole other thing. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Dizzy Gillespie was born uh, John Burks Gillespie. He lived from 1917 to 1993. What's his sign? 
And he's a Libra. Yes. Dizzy Gillespie, a Libra by like two, by barely a Libra, like October 21st or something like that. Sorry about that. Keep going. (laughs) Dizzy Gillespie was credited along with Charlie Parker and a handful of other musicians with inventing bebop. And one of the great things about, you know, jazz's invention in the 20th century is that you know, Dizzy Gillespie did a lot of television interviews and stuff, and you can find a lot of that stuff online, so you can see him talk about that. And what he said about that was, it was an evolution, not an invention, and if he didn't do it, somebody else would come along and do it, and someone else is going to do something five years from now that's totally grown in a different direction. And, you know, so he was very, like, humble and kind of aware of his position of the importance of what he created, but also knowing that like it took a village to create that and to evolve jazz into that era of bebop. Dizzy Gillespie played uh, obviously a trumpet player. And in 1953, according to him, and you'll see him talk about this story on YouTube. If you look up videos, you can see him tell the story. His biographer says it's a big fat lie, but... (laughs) He didn't say that till after Dizzy died, which I thought was really interesting. But okay. the story that Dizzy said is that he was throwing a party for his wife, Lorraine, and there was a band there. Of course, the band was there, and Dizzy was playing. And a couple of either the band members or a couple of dancers were messing around, and his trumpet was sitting on a trumpet stand, which is basically like a tripod for a trumpet. And you stick the bell on top of this thing that then holds the trumpet in a vertical position, and somebody tripped over it. And bent the bell 45 degrees. And he had to play that way. He played that night. And so he just played it as was. And then he had it straightened out the next day. But then he really liked the way it sounded. So he had it re-bent. Or actually, I think maybe he had one commissioned commissioned to have one made properly. Because, of course, anytime you're bending metal... It's going to alter the sound. It's going to alter... Altering all kinds of things. And you can never bend it back, right? It's just like a car bumper back in the day. You can try, but it's the metal will be scarred mm-hmm. because it's been stretched. Yeah. So in any event, that was the story he told and that that's how he played with this trumpet where the bell shoots 45 degrees up into the air. He said he liked the way it carried over the audience, got to the back row. He said he could hear himself better, which for sure, um, but it's completely absurd to see one. And <laughs> I, as a trumpet player, I never have had the pleasure of playing an instrument like that. But I can only imagine that adding that 45-degree turn... Makes you have to blow harder, right? It's going to affect the air resistance. And mm-hmm. so it definitely 100% will alter the, the way you play. Of course, the other thing that's very famous about Dizzy, there were so many iconic things about his appearance. So it wasn't just the way the trumpet looked. It was the fact that he didn't keep his cheeks flat when he played, which that's like trumpet 101 right away when mm-hmm. you're taught, when you're little, don't let your cheeks expand out, right? Mm -hmm. And he also had a medical condition that's fairly common and completely harmless that allows air to escape your larynx area into your neck. And so when he played, his neck also bulged out, which was really just funny to see his whole, like from the neck up bulge when he played. And then on top of that, Dizzy was pretty much a beatnik before the beatniks. He was the beret-wearing, soul patch sporting 
hip cat up on stage and everybody wanted to look like him because he looked so fucking cool. And so he Hmm. really was an innovator and just a character and he was a little bit of a ham on stage, which people mm-hmm. just loved Yeah, when they would go to his shows and he was always making jokes. Well, let me, let me introduce the band. And then he'd stand up and like literally the bandmates would introduce each other to each other and, mm-hmm. you know, just joke funny things like that, yeah. you know? And on top of that, he played like an absolute monster in the best way. So let's listen to him play, shall we? Let's. And I just, I took 17 things from what you just said. The 18th thing was that I said, it makes you have to blow harder. And you're like, it just makes such a difference in the air resistance. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Ms. Emily Reese. <laughs> Here's some dizzy. This is him with his band in the 50s. This is a tune he wrote called Tin Tin Deo. So screaming trumpets. And you said he made his bandmates play with those as well? Sometimes, yeah. You'll see pictures of his trumpets in his band having these horns as well. Yeah, you'll find that picture on our Patreon page. We always post our photos and our playlist and stuff there. But yeah, he was a great band leader. He led bands on and off his whole life. He was technically brilliant. We talked about Clifford Brown a couple weeks ago. Dizzy was older than Clifford, so came before Clifford and definitely influenced him. So that screaming sound, is that part style, part trumpet, part cheeks kind of thing? <laughs> like what, how much can we attribute it to that ridiculous trumpet shape? I think both all of it and kind of maybe none of it. Cause I feel like, you know, let's listen to an earlier recording of him before, before that trumpet okay. even yeah. was a thing. So you can hear him play. Okay. This is a tune that Thelonious Monk wrote, not that that matters, um, and it's called 52nd Street Theme, and this is from 1946, so this is before that trumpet got bent, and it's a really good example of what Dizzy was really good at, which is playing fast and high. sounds more almost and maybe because the previous one sounded almost live um that it this just sounds like cleaner even at that oh. higher register it doesn't have the distortion at the end of each note that gets kind of powered yeah you know do you know what i mean i do okay and i, I don't do. know if that's him and, you know I, I could see that being a combination of him and the trumpet or not the trumpet at all but yeah. that makes me curious yeah there's this great interview that he did Actually, um, he did this interview in 1972. You can find it online. 
and the host introduces him. There's a radio host, there's a musicologist, and Dizzy, and they're just going to have this conversation for about a half hour. And it's for a radio station. The host introduces him, and, you know, Dizzy Gillespie, inventor of bebop, all these awards, blah 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 because this is in the 70s now, 1972. And Dizzy had just been given an honorary doctorate from Rutgers, and so Dizzy interrupted him. He's like, it's Dr. Dizzy Gillespie, Dr. John Burks Gillespie, you know, and he goes, and you can add, rhythm is my business. What do you think of this not-so-talented and <laughs> kind of delicious but not-so-amazing seltzer water in in the fact that knowing how it's made, does that make you like it more? And, and by the way, was me explaining how it's made, is that clear? That they're basically, instead of soaking grains with flavor to make a solution that then you add yeast and you make beer out of, yeah. you're just doing a stripped version? Yes. And then you're, okay... So is that, and there are processes to do that without gluten, with a different grain or a different. So okay. does that yeah make sense? Okay. Y- yes, it does. I, I mean, it makes sense. Your explanation. Does it make sense globally? Why they're making it? No. <laughs> well, globally, you know, honestly, we're the only we're the only country that really, you know, after Mike's Hard Lemonade was mm-hmm. when stuff like that really started to get explored further yeah. because that was obviously Mike's Hard Lemonade was post. The wine cooler craze. Yep. Zima. Then, yeah, Zima was around that time. Yeah. And Zima was like really successful for, as you would say, a half a minute. Yeah. But it did fall out of favor. Because it was Um, so gross. It was just undrinkable. Yeah. Well, this is like, the reason why this is drinkable is because it tastes like watermelon Jolly Ranchers and strawberry lime, whatever. And now, you know, flavors that are in like cucumber cilantro, people are making like, Flavors that are more applicable to now, whereas Zima, that has like that, you just taste a Zima. Yeah. And that's very of a time. Yes. You know? Um, yeah. Zima tastes like 1996. I don't even want to talk about 1996. <laughs> do you want, do you want to go on to fruit beers? Yeah. Okay. So every once in a while, you're such a good friend to just be like, hey, Emily, do you want to taste something different? Do you want to try something new? And you'll bring over a fruity, soury thing that I just have never experienced anything like that. Well, sometimes I bring you cool wine to taste. Well, yeah, I've or had beers like or whatever, yeah. Open at pre-COVID, like open at a tasting and people give me a lot of stuff and I can't, obviously I can't drink it all, so what do yeah. I do? Call up my homies. Yes. Hey, you guys want to taste them? Hey, you, you're on that list. So, Emily, you want to, I know that you're wanting to learn more and more about wine, right? So bring, bring you over something. And once in a while, yes, they do happen to be fruity, weird, sour beers. Yeah, so let's talk about that. Okay, before I poo-poo them, I will say that sour beers and fruity beers together, were it's one of the oldest styles of beer in the world, right? Because back before they could make really clean beer, yeah, beer likely had a sour element, right? Before people really knew microbially and chemically, like what was on a chemistry level, meaning what was happening in a beer, in a fermented product. So there was likely some sour happening by natural 
what we now know, Britannomyces, Pediococcus, Lactobacillus, hanging around in, in a cellar, in a cave, wherever. Why were they fruited? Well, fruit added antioxidants that they didn't know that at the time, but it probably made the beer last a little longer. Also, let's be honest, beer back in the day when it was souring naturally centuries ago, if not millennia ago, probably tasted awful. So fruit made it taste a little bit better. And now I think when we're drinking, like when I go to a brewery, I'm always willing to taste anything. But when I taste like a kettle sour, which is a sour beer that's quick to market, I'll explain why in a sec, that's got fruit in it, it just sort of tastes like I'm drinking a little bit of like a hard seltzer that's got a little bit more weight. And so I kind of wonder like, why? You know, it doesn't really taste like much. Now, granted, if you don't like IPAs and you don't like stouts and you don't like beer, this is a perfect way to appease people that, you know, may say, oh, I don't like beer. I might, I don't like hoppy things. It's red. It is. It's like a dark kind of plum color. And I elected something that I think I would drink. You know, like would I go out and buy a six pack of this beer? No. But this brewery gave me a sample of this to taste. I bring in beers for a local local wine and beer shop. And I like this beer. I, it's not my style, but I think it's well made. And I'll tell you why I think that this is more of a, a better made fruited sour than many, but to scores and pours. To scores and pours. Very berry. Very berry. Does it taste super thin? No. No. Now, most kettle sours... Honest to God, it tastes like an effing wine cooler. It really does. Mm. I think it kind of just tastes like a... Not a milkshake, because it doesn't have milk sugar, and I apologize that I keep saying I'll get to that, because I don't mean to get ahead of myself. But it it tastes to me like a thin, a really thin, non-dairy smoothie. Yes. You know, that's got some effervescence. This is a... Beer that has raspberry, blackcurrant, and blueberry. And I just want to talk about the difference between... So sour beers, I was saying before, there are naturally sour beers that normally a lot of those beers will have a natural fermentation, meaning actually spontaneous fermentation with native yeasts that happen. The problem with that is a lot of times those take years to make. And they're not really economically possible for a lot of breweries, especially, you know, your typical brew pub on the corner. So the typical turnaround time for what we call now a kettle sour is much quicker because what they do is they will add lactobacillus, which is the same bacteria that we find in yogurt. They'll add that to the unfermented wort. So wort is we have grains steeping in water. Now we have basically grain water that before we put yeast in, got all these sugars in it. So you put that lactobacillus in there and ooh, those sugars and all that stuff that's going on, that sours the beer. In less than 24 hours, souring starts happening. And usually it's within like a week that beer is complete, <laughs> that souring process. And that's on like the, the longer end of time. And, you know, a lot of... Kettle sours don't have much head retention, you know, they're really thin, so they'll like pre, they'll add like food grade acid. There's just a lot of Hmm. doctoring to a beer to make a kettle sour. And then of course, then you've got the whatever fruit, a lot of them are fruit purees. Lord knows if those fruit purees are 100% natural fruit, you know, 
Yeah. A lot of times they're not, honestly. So it just makes for a beer that's like kind of thin and fruity and a, a lot of times aggressively carbonated. And I just don't think they make, like they kind of do beer a little bit of a disservice because they're so far away from true like soured beers, like, mm, yeah. you know, time-honored sour beers. Yeah. And they're kind of, I don't know, they taste a little bit gimmicky, I guess, is my my problem with the first and the second options that I'm talking about today. Yeah. I mean, this one I have had before, and I do like this one. This is one of the few beers of this style that I do like. And But same thing, like I'd want one. I don't want six in a night. Well, I don't want six of much of anything in a night, but I don't want two or three even. I want one. Mm-hmm. And maybe even I'll split it with you one. You know, and have like a little, and then maybe save a little for on top of your ice cream. Yeah, you know, like that would be really fun. Or make a mm-hmm. malt with this and yeah. put just a little boop in there. Heck yeah, like that would be really fun. Or a smoothie, even your morning smoothie. There you go, <laughs> <laughs> Emily Reese, ladies and gentlemen, again. Now, this producer of beer specifically states that they're not on their can, I don't think, anywhere, but I was talking to the one of the people that represents this brewery, and they said that oh, it's vegan. And I was like, well, why is that important? Yeah. Of course, milk sugar, lactose is a lot of times responsible for a certain type of sour beer that nowadays the milkshake IPA craze. And it gives like kind of exactly what you'd think when you hear of lactose or milk sugar. That's what's added to a a milk stout. And it Mm. gives like a richer body to a lot of these thinned out sour beers. Okay. And it kind of you know, fleshens out their mid palate a little bit, which I just think, well, now I'm adding sugar to my beer because lactobacillus can't feed off of that at all. And yeast can't feed. It's like a certain type of sugar that can't ferment out. And so now you're left with like kind of a little bit of sweetness in the beer, which, ooh, humans (laughs) love that, even though we don't like to think we do. So now you have like fruited, sour, thin, but now rich again and kind of sweet, I just something I don't understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tasting this sour, fruity, thin beer that I don't understand but think is kind of delicious. Yeah. Ridiculous. Makes me think of trombones when you sent me the playlist. Yeah. That I don't necessarily understand but I kind of love even yeah. though they're absolutely ridiculous. A trombone ensemble. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Yeah, I mean, trombone, I mean, just by nature of its appearance is just hands down the most ridiculous instrument that's commonly seen in a jazz ensemble or, or an orchestra. I kid, sort of. I, I love trombone, and it's not even really necessarily fair to single out the trombone in this instance because there are also plenty of trumpet-only ensembles and plenty of saxophone ensembles that... Uh, that get together and record albums. So it's not like trombones are the only ones who do this. It happens. Uh, But trombone ensembles are uh, a bit ubiquitous and kind of can sound a little ridiculous, especially there there was a trombonist or there is a trombonist named Slide Hampton. Slide Hampton, he was born in 1932, and Slide Hampton decided in the 70s to create an ensemble with nine trombones, called what yeah yeah world of trombones slide hampton's world of trombones (laughs) so that sounds pretty funny now that it sounds funny it also sounds great because they're all really good trombone players and i can completely forgive slide for avoiding one common pitfall of trombone ensembles let me just name you some bonarama 
bonegasm, big bad bones, bonafide. Whoa. Yeah. So <laughs> at least slide Let me it. take another sip of this fruited <laughs> sour <laughs> ale I don't understand. I'm just like, oh my God. And when Jennifer Wharton, who is an absolutely phenomenal bass, trombone, uh, bass trombonist uh, and her uh, ensemble, Bonegasm debuted in 2019, I was like, oh no, nope. But then I listened to it, and they're really freaking good. So, And what I love about Jennifer Wharton's group is that she commissions all this new music to be written for the ensemble. And her in her ensemble, it's just four trombones. She's the bass trombonist, and then three tenor trombones. And I really enjoy the music that she has commissioned. So let's, uh, let's listen to uh, some Jennifer Wharton, some of Jennifer Wharton's group, Bonegasm. <laughs> Okay, so you know how you're usually in the shower and you're yeah. usually like, I don't know, listening to, if, if you are listening to music, you're listening to something that you're just going to like get it for the day. And that could be anything from classical to, yeah. you know, Lady Gaga, take your pick depending on what you're in the mood for. Yeah. I had this going today when I took a shower. <laughs> I was very cold in my apartment today. It was a chilly, like 70 degrees in my apartment and... I was cold, so I took a shower, wasted some water, felt really bad about it. But that was on. (laughs) And I was just like, what am I loofing to? This is so weird (laughs) and so beautiful and ridiculous. Hashtag ridiculous. from their first album uh, that again came out in I think 2019 She and Bonegasm just released a new album and it's great it's absolutely phenomenal. Let's listen to a new track. Yeah. Most of the music on this new album, which, by the way, is called Not a Novelty, which there speaks, she knows she's climbing uphill with a trombone ensemble here. Mm-hmm. But uh, so the new album, Not a Novelty, almost all brand new music written for trombone ensemble, which how fun is that? I mean, cool. that's, is she writing a lot of music? She's commissioning a lot of the music. Okay. So, but great.
I noticed her harmonizing with someone else, right? Or a couple people harmonizing. Maybe it's not her. Maybe she's keeping the bass part. Other trombonists are harmonizing. Is that a lot harder to do, you being a trumpet player and a professional one, pretty much? Like, how... How much harder is that on the trombone than on the trumpet when the trumpet doesn't have, you know, the, the slide to contend with? Like you could, obviously they know those positions like the back of their hand, but just the slightest millimeter could make it such a big difference, you know? Yeah, I mean, a lot of that is muscle memory, obviously, with trombonists, mm -hmm. but um, also all brass players are constantly making adjustments with their embouchure, with yep. their lips as well, to stay in tune. And trombonists do that too. I, I That's what I mean. They have that extra bit of difficulty because they could slide. Just their muscle memory could be. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're wearing a jacket yeah. instead of a. You know. Yeah. No. It's it's almost. Imp well, I would say that it is impossible to play a trombone in tune at all times. Just like a like a stringed instrument without frets sure. as well. I mean, yeah, yeah, there's yeah. so much give on either side of the right spot of the note that yeah. it's just that's just how it's going to be. Yeah. Astute question. I mentioned Slide Hampton's World of Trombones. We, Deb, don't you want to hear what nine trom yes. trombones sound like yes, playing Donnelly? Do. Okay. <laughs> it's so great. <laughs> like bass trombone. Imagine it takes a certain type of person that's playing the trombone. There's like a per there's like a personality. Oh right, yeah. Right. So imagine oh, yeah. nine of them. Is it? Is that just, yeah. I mean, is nobody's going to be on time. That's for sure. A lot of times when I you know, see these new recordings come across. I'm like, well, this is a record, you know, it's like a, a trombone recording for trombonists. It, it's maybe not going to seek that wider audience. But then when I hear... That's what we're for. Exactly. And then, <laughs> but then when I hear, you know, and this was, again, this is the 70s. This is Slide Hampton just doing his thing, like having some fun, getting all his buddies together to play. Like, yeah, do that and record it because it's fun to hear. Mm -hmm. Then I hear like, Jennifer Wharton's group where she is literally taking it to the next level. Yeah. And like having new music written for the ensemble. That's really cool. That's cool. Yeah. I yeah. mean, because I listen to this and I'm like, if I heard this on a jazz station, I'd keep it on. Oh, yeah. I would not turn it off. Yeah. It's fun. It's like. Jill, would you like a hard seltzer? <laughs> no. Jill, would you like to listen to nine people play the trombone together? Yes. Yes, I would. 
Should we drink something amazingly, ridiculously good? Yes. Thank you for introducing us all to Slide Hampton, by the way. Yeah. And again, I want to throw out on the show, I try to do my best to not poo-poo whether it's a grape or a region or a style of wine or beverage. So I want to reiterate, drink White Claw if you love it. Drink hard seltzers all day and fruited sours. Once in a while, I think there are some pretty great stuff out there. It's just few and far between. In my eyes, it's a, a little ridiculous just because I don't understand it yet. Basically, get your freak on. Yes. Get your freak on. 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 I thought it'd be in the beverage department. Good to finish with something that I thought was ridiculous, but so ridiculous, like Lee Good. Ridiculous, likely good is what I want to say. <laughs> and I chose a cider, which is maybe something you didn't expect because you would, you would, you know, if I pulled a natural wine out of my back pocket or one of my producers or something, you'd be like, well, of course that's ridiculously good, Jill. So I wanted to showcase one of my favorite regions of cider. We are in Brittany, France, otherwise known as Breton ciders. And there they say Bretagne, okay? <laughs> which is the largest peninsula in all of France, and it kind of juts out of the northwest part of the country. And it is just southwest of Normandy to orient you. If For those of you that know Normandy ciders, probably they are one of the most famous European ciders. Okay. And the reason why Breton ciders aren't really well known is because there's a lot of them are made in that region, but they don't really leave the region, and if they do, they don't really leave the country hmm. um, because they're so delicious. And there's just I don't have a th this percentage is definitely not going to be concrete or statistically accurate. But in my mind, for every twenty Normandy ciders I see on a shelf, I see one Breton cider. So there's just a lot less of them around. Okay. And to compare, you know, French French ciders. We, when we have Normandy ciders, they're like funky, you get like bruised apple, you get this like nice puffy effervescence, but not super carbon. It's not like a champagne. It's less carbonation, but like kind of like a pet nat, a little bit less than a pet nat. Yeah. And you get like this rustic notion, like some Britannomyces, a little barnyard horse hoovy. Breton cider, you get all of those qualities. They're a little bit cleaner, I think, than like a full-on barnyard horse hoovy. The bruised apples are just a little less bruised, and they tend to be kind of like elusive. Like there's something about them that you can't quite understand in the same way that I think Bosque red wines from Southwest France are. Like they remind me whenever I taste them, I'm like, I look down to make sure I'm not wearing Argyle socks and that one of them isn't inside out. Like that's <laughs> how I feel about Breton ciders. And they're one of my favorite ciders to drink because I just don't get to drink them that often. And whenever I do, I come to them with a clear head, right? Like I may or may not like this. It, it's not just good. It's like it's saying all French wine is good wine. No, yeah, it's not. All Breton cider is not good. But I just always find that when I do have them, or I would say 90% of the time I have them, there's such good value for money. I mean, this cider that we're drinking here was 12 bucks. Wow. I mean, it's that's a tall bottle. It's like a... It's a wine bottle, wine seven, bottle. 750 mils. Yeah. Yep. This cider is called Ferme du Beau Soleil, which means the beautiful sunny farm, which is cute. Cute. And the it's his bio cider. This is Thomas Renoir, who 
basically is like a one-man show, which is crazy when you think about it to not only tend to organic orchards, but now you're making your own cider. I have heard he deals with all of his own distribution, like is the money business side of it too, which is insane. Usually your spouse or you have a business partner or something that helps you with that employee or something. And what's cute is this guy's making obviously his own cider. He's making a pear cider, but he also sells apple juice. He sells carbonated apple juice for Yum. you know people that maybe don't want to drink or for the kids. He sells distillates. They're they they call them eau de vie or the water of life. That's <laughs> made out of his apples or pears. And I don't know if he's doing his own distilling. That would be ridiculous. It would likely be illegal. But up in Breton. You know, some illegal things are kind of, it's the Wild West up there, so I wouldn't be surprised if he does that. Nice. But it comes from the village of Matignon, which literally is, the the village of Matignon is a stone's throw away from the sea, and also a very quick jaunt across the border, you'd be in Normandy. Oh, nice. So influenced heavily by that. To scores and pours. To scores and pours. To ridiculousness. You smell that like rustic kind of barn, a little bit barnyardy? Oh, yeah. oh, it tastes like it too. It's almost like smoky, mm. weird, leathery, mm. appley, peaty. Yes, that's the one. Mm. There are a lot of bogs up there. Not okay. that he's using any sort of smoked anything with this, yeah. but there but are you, a lot of bogs up there. Wow, yeah, that's strong in a good way, not in a bad way. Do you notice how that finish of like dried apples and peat are on the finish? Yes. Like smoked peat? Yes. Mm. Yeah. And I love also how that effervescence doesn't feel like aggressive champagne effervescence, but it's also not like CO2 injection, like beery. Right. Either. Yeah. It's very it's kind round. of soft. Yep. Very soft. Mm-hmm. Are you into it? Oh, I love it. Yeah. I is, love cider all day. Is yeah. it dry or sweet in your opinion? Tip of, t- tip of the tongue. A little sweet. Is it dry? Cute. You're looking at me for like confirmation. Like, oh, this is, it is, it, I think it is, if it's dry, we're like on the cusp of off dry. Like there's the keenest amount of residual sugar, but it's very small. Yes. This guy, his the family has been tending to orchards and making ciders since the 70s, but he's had um, they've been organic since 2008. So that's cool that they've nice. you know converted a long time ago and have yeah. been well a long time ago for the organics world in France yeah. a while ago. Yeah. And been producing delicious cider ever since. So hats off to this guy. Amazing. When that cidery was going organic, the next person I'm going to talk about was five years old. Joey Alexander was born in 2003. Did, are you done cidering? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to just like... Do it. Go and get in there. And he was born that's, in, in... That's really quick math, Emily Reese. <laughs> in 2008, he was five. Mr. Alexander was born in 2003, everyone. <laughs> yeah, just in case you're having trouble keeping up. Uh, but yeah, he uh, was born in, he's from Indonesia, and he just released a new single uh, within the last few weeks. His newest album came out in 2020, his newest full-length album came out in 2020. It's called Warna, which means color in his native language. Um, but Joey Alexander is a pianist and it's speechless, really, is because being a musician, being in radio... But mostly just growing up playing, you, if you're in that and grinding and playing gigs and going through music school and college and stuff, you play with all kinds of people all around the world a lot. And as a musician, you're constantly running into quote unquote prodigies. Mm -hmm. 
And so I've seen and heard a lot of young, tremendously talented musicians. None of them ever in my life have ever had it like this kid has it. And it's like a lot of times I think a lot of child prodigies, they play either the way they're, they're so good at absorbing the new and outputting it because your mind is just so just, they can just devour anything, you know, put on Dizzy Gillespie, they can play like Dizzy kind of thing. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But then to go the extra step and sound like you're 50, that almost never happens, right? Mm -hmm. You can hear someone tearing it up on the piano, tearing it up on the trombone, playing a drum solo, and you're like, wow, that's, that's sick. That's amazing. But that person, you know, you put them next to somebody who's 50 and you're going to be able to tell there's just nuance, right? Mm -hmm. And he, there's something so special about him where it's not, he's not playing what he thinks is right. He's playing what's right. And it's, it's just really amazing, especially if you watch him play. If you go on YouTube and you see, first of all, how tiny he was. I mean, now he's 17, so he's like taller, <laughs> But when he recorded his first album, you know, his feet barely touched the ground, yet he's playing with really seasoned jazz artists who have been around for decades, and they want to play with him. And it's not that they want to play with him because he's a novelty. They want to play with him because he's so ridiculously good and because he's such a good listener and he has that spark, that gift, you know, that all the talented kids in the world put them together they couldn't have. So in any event, um, let's listen to some, uh, some Joey. This is from the album Warna, and this is a, a tune written by uh, one of my absolute favorite tenor saxophone players, Joe Henderson. But this is uh, Joey Alexander playing it on the piano, Inner Urge. from Indonesia because Joey Alexander doesn't exactly sound Indonesian. Yeah, I mean, his his full name is Josiah Alexander Sila, and he's 100% Indonesian. And um, his he's got an aunt, I think, who's a famous pop singer in Indonesia and kind of a musical family. Um, but yeah, he was shockingly very self-taught. His dad had a lot of jazz records and Joey really liked listening to them. And they basically, they got him a toy piano and he quickly outgrew it and literally just taught himself how to play. album was made? For this one that came out last year, he was 16, so he was probably 15, 16 when he recorded it. Mm -hmm. 
you're speechless over here. Yeah. A lot of times when jazz musicians or other musicians who know a lot about jazz, when you're listening to someone play jazz and you're listening to their solo, you're listening for, of course, what notes are you playing? Are, you know, are you staying within the jazz harmonies or acceptable substitutions for said harmonies and all of those technically musical things, yeah. Is it like phrasing? You're, you're listening, listening for? for phrasing and you're listening for that thread of what story are you telling. So when, let's say, you know, you're playing a tune like this and you play one time through the whole tune, that's one, that's called a chorus. And so how many choruses are you going to take on your solo? Are you going to play through the tune several times, three, four, five, six times? Are you going to have a three, four, five, six minute long solo? And how are you going to keep people's interest throughout that solo? And what, what are you going to do musically throughout that solo? Joey, I think when he was maybe 14, did a performance for a TED Talk. And he plays a Thelonious Monk tune. And it's really um, insightful to, to watch him play that TED Talk because... The solo is so just beyond, you're just like, how does such a young person create such an engaging, interesting, um, detailed solo? I mean, it's, well, it's amazing. Okay. So let me ask you this. If he was, if he were to be 45 years old, mm -hmm. would it, would it be then that good? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And I think I know, that's I know the whole you, point. You, you uttered something similar to that earlier on in your discussion about him. But I just, I wonder if it's watching him do that TED Talk at 14 and you listen to the solo and you're like, wow, that solo is so good. I can't believe it's coming from a 14-year-old. Versus like if you saw it from someone that was, you know, had 45 years on their belt, mm -hmm. then is it sort of like that solo is so good, but does it not really stand out? Like would you would it not be as memorable because they're just not, like yeah, flipping 14. And see, I think that's where Joey Alexander is different because, yes, that's what's so special about the way he plays is that if I heard someone who's 40 play that solo, I'd be like, yes, mm -hmm. that's so good. That's so intuitively good. You can't teach someone to play jazz like that, you know? So, yes, it would be just as good. Yeah. Do you want to hear one more by sure. Joey? This was from his very first album, which I believe Wynton Marcellus, who's a very famous jazz trumpeter and educator, kind of helped Joey to get this album recorded. It's, the album is called My Favorite Things, and uh, the tune is a very difficult tune to solo over. It's not very hard to play the melody, but the soloing of this tune is very difficult because the chord changes are very complex, and it's called Giant Steps, and it was written by a saxophonist named John Coltrane. And so this one has a little bit of an... Uh, an intro to it so you won't hear the melody right away it's just him and the piano before the rest of his uh, before the bass drummer or the bass player and the drummer come in
and here he's 11. I was probably learning the alphabet when I was 11. Yeah, and you know, there are even other jazz prodigies like Harry Connick Jr. I think his first album came out when he's 10, but this kid plays circles around Harry. I mean, Harry wasn't this kind of player for one thing. albums by Joey out there and check him out for sure. He's one to watch and I'm sure he gets really annoyed. I mean, annoyed is probably not fair to put words in his mouth, but I think he gets, he's not comfortable with the term prodigy. He's not comfortable with the term genius, those things. And I think that's, it is fair for him to say that because that's a lot to put on a kid's shoulders. But, um, Yeah, people want to play with this kid. certain percentage of us I think that listen to this music and think wow that is you know a super talented b super talented and 16 WTF yeah and then I think I don't know I there have to be people that listen to scores and pores that listen to this and they're like man I'm mediocre (laughs) like it's just insane how good this kid is at such a young age like that's I mean what were we all doing at 11 we can drink some amazing, ridiculously good cider while we're listening to a ridiculously good pianist. Well, what I'm taking from this episode, there are many ridiculous things, much ridiculousness to explore in the world, both that we don't understand and that we do. And so to, I just want to say to Joey Alexander, to Breton Cider. Yeah. To Scores and Pours. To Scores and Pours. Joey Alexander, you can drink this in about four years. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scores and Pours with Joel Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this podcast and support us financially at patreon.com slash scores and pours. You can also find a link on that same website to our merch, which includes hoodies and tees. Playlist is there too, and we'll uh, put up the cider that we tasted today. We're on Instagram at scores and pours. Shoot us a DM if you've got any show ideas or questions or comments, and please also do uh, give us a rating where you listen to your podcast if you would. 
Consider supporting the musicians we featured today by buying their music. Edited by Jill Mott and Emily Reese. Our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc.